Well, welcome to the next session, uh, which I think is about collaborations. And uh, I'm going to make some general comments. Um, I'd, uh, and my comments are not necessarily directed uh, to people interested in higher education. I've always and will continue to be deeply interested in K-12 education, too. And, and uh, I think that um, uh, sometimes in our enthusiasm about our technologies and the, and the media that we're able to provide and many of the wondrous software inventions, we lose a sense of um, the urgency of the educational dilemmas of uh, people not only in the United States but around the world. Um, when I was working for um, uh, Fujitsu in, 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 of all places, Ireland, um, we used to go to a bar uh, called the Bleeding Horse, which was right next to the organization. And uh, uh, there's a tradition in Irish uh, culture that if you are uh, part of it, you probably know. People are fabulous storytellers, this tradition of storytelling. And uh, I heard this great story that I never forgot that I, I used to remind myself of what the world is really like and about every so often. Um, it's a story of one man coming into a bar and seeing an old friend, and the old friend is drinking, and he's just so upset. Uh, he, he's a nervous wreck. He can hardly function. And uh, his friend says, uh, what's wrong? What's wrong? He said, uh, I, I just started air traffic controller school. And uh, I'm six weeks into the program, and uh, I'm just so frightened I can't do this. He said, well, why, why? He said, do you realize you look at the screen and every blip on the screen, 200 lives. And uh, his friend said, oh, I can understand that. And he talked with him a while and left. And he came back about six months later to the same bar and he found his friend there. And he's just perfectly relaxed and having no problems whatsoever from appearances. And his friend says, oh, I guess you must have dropped out of air traffic controller school. You look really relaxed. You don't have any problems anymore. And he said, oh, no, no. He said, I finished. I graduated. And I'm an air traffic controller. He said, but, but the blips, the blips, every blip, 200 lives. And he says, oh, no, they're just blips. <laughs> and um, I always use that story to uh, remind myself that uh, we, we often uh, use counters to represent uh, things in our lives and ciphers. And um, uh, we are, in fact, in a, uh, a world of uh, urgency that uh, is impressing itself on us at all times, not only in respect to education, but many, many other things. And um, I remember just in continuing in this vein, if you'll allow me to for a little while, uh, the uh, the um, first time I went to Orlando to, to speak at a technology conference and demonstrate these simulations we've been developing in another context. And uh, Orlando looked to me like a complete city of light. Uh, it seemed like everywhere you went, there was a kind of luminosity. I rented a car when I was there with my friends, and we started to drive. And there was actually legitimate perimeter that if you passed that perimeter, you actually had no street lights. 
So that Orlando was really like two worlds. There was this one world of total luminosity. And then there was another world that lived in darkness. And if you might have guessed that that world that lived in darkness was actually a dark world, which was mostly inhabited by African-American people. And um, I think that there's a danger in the world that we work in that one of my graduate students who just finished his PhD, uh, I think, described and defined as notocentrism. That is that we get caught up in the luminosity of media and the luminosity of the internet. And we forget about what he calls the paralogical worlds that exist that are outside of the system of light that represents the communication systems that we thrive in, live in, communicate in, and relate with him. His name is Ulysses Mejias. Um, and um, what, what excites me about that is it forces us out of our own context. Uh, the first meeting I went to this morning was in the Earth Institute. And uh, I was discussing with a young graduate student the fact that, um, that uh, she was, t I asked her what a dissertation was going to be about. And she said, my dissertation is going to be about electricity in Kenya and how to help Kenya develop more capability in the production of electricity. I said, well, can you define the problem? And she said, well, she said, 70% of Kenya is rural and only 2% of that 70% have access to electricity. So that represents an entire paralogical world that is outside the notocentric universe of the technologies that we represent and we live with. So that one of the, one of the things I would suggest in the form of collaborations would be that our world has to somehow at some point intersect with the world that's interested in sustainable development, that's interested in third world development, at one point, the third world was actually named as a project as opposed to a problem. And, um, and uh, so there is a domain of collaboration. Um, a second domain of collaboration that I'd like to mention, if you go back educationally just a few ticks, uh, you encounter, and you still encounter today on a daily basis in, in schools and universities, if you were to ask, well, what is the centerpiece of the educational process? It was the textbook. And if you think about what a textbook was, and still is in many, many places, it was an aggregate. Textbooks are aggregators of information, narrativized contextualization. Textbooks always include in their teacher's manuals uh, pedagogical advice for the teacher, it's chunked in a certain way that allows it to be delivered in a periodized form, okay? And if you think about it, the textbook in some ways is a microcosm of the whole educational system that spins around it as a hub. So we build the buildings to facilitate small groups of people that get together in time periods that are chunked so that chapters can be covered. The teachers are informed by the questions at the end of the chapters were directed by the teacher's editions on how to orchestrate the use of the content that is within the textbook. Now, 
what did the digital revolution do, first and foremostly? Well, it disaggregated. It extracted from the textbook information. It criticized the fact that most information was deeply limited, not primary in character. And it began to, in a sense, make the claim that the revolution would be based on the capacity to deliver primary source information to young people so that they can contend like any scholar would in, in a more limited way with real information. Well, it's our job to remember that it's one thing to disaggregate information from the textbook and to present it to students, but we have the obligation to re-engage and produce collaborations with what the textbook at one time had predetermined by its sheer form. So the kind of collaborations we need to develop are that all people who are aggregators of all that wonderful new primary source content that effectively had been, has been liberated and made present and luminous, we have to now begin to have conversations with architects. We have to talk about the nature of assessment in this new world. How do you contextualize these activities? What kind of tools for the engagement with these digital resources that we provide? So it's almost as if we disaggregated what was the complete system, but then we chose not to address the six or seven or 10 or 15 dimensions of that system that over 400 years had been developed and really were the foundation of what education became in the nation state. So the demand for collaboration there seems pretty straightforward. Uh, it's, it's really uh, that we pull together in redefining, reconceptualizing, restructuring the, the complete enterprise, not just a piece of the enterprise. It's almost unfair to provide information uh, across the board and to take no responsibility for how it's used and to assume that somehow an effective use of it will be serendipitously constructed through time by the chance causes of history. Uh, that's probably one of my strongest uh, uh, interests in education is really trying to pay attention to all of those different dimensions and aspects of the reconstruction of the process. The, um, the next point I don't have to make again, you can, you can uh, if you choose to, go back to the web when the video is available. It's the first point I made at the opening of the conference, but I think the point of departure for new ventures that wish to be called educational have to start with the agencies of education themselves, and that the battle for educational reform has to be waged within the world of practice. It can't be done in satellite endeavors. Somehow we have to produce the collaborations that allow us to work within the institutions of practice that are processing people as students through time. And um, that's a tremendous challenge because the process of invention almost requires that you separate yourself to some extent. So the demands for collaboration are almost uh, ones that run against the natural tendency of people who are engaged in the hothouse efforts to invent new entities and, and new things that are related to the different dimensions of the work we do. Um, I, I was uh, very moved by Paul's uh, uh, presentation from the BBC when he talked about his travails um, at the BBC and uh, realized that, uh, on the one hand, 
it, it's, it's very hard to imagine what to do there, but in some very real sense, that powerful institution is not going to disappear, and solutions have to be found within it in order to allow it to become and remain what it has always been in, in, in the UK. And there, I'm outside of my level of expertise that's based just on observations that I made based on what he said. I think that crossover activities, and this is an effort to just at least give you a, a, a symbol of an activity of ours that uh, I would call a crossover activity, and I would, um, okay, yeah. The Triangle Initiative is an effort of the Center for New Media Teaching and Learning to develop media interventions that simultaneously uh, function as classroom interventions that are built on research that's taking place in the university, but the media objects themselves that are realized as a result of the process are actual community interventions. Uh, so for example, um, in the field of social work, we have developed a, a multimedia version of an intervention that was developed to prevent the communication of AIDS, particularly in couples where one member of the couple is already infected. And we took what was already a proven researched intervention that works and had a high degree of reliability and through uh, the agency of media were able to standardize the intervention so that we could lower the bar for facilitators in the field. At the same time, many of the elements of the intervention that were media-based are being used in the School of Social Work as a form of preparation for their work in the field. And um, this has turned out to be an interesting heuristic for the center. Now we have uh, about six or seven different triangle initiatives where we have research-based work where we're developing media that's an expression of that research and also an advance of that research that works both in the classroom and uh, in the community. And when I say community, it's usually the underserved populations that we're talking about. So I would say crossover activities of this type are very important. And even on a more in a more circumscribed sense, uh, in the sense that it's within the university, the Digital Bridges project that Mark Philipson is working on is an effort to take fields that are usually embedded and driven by their own jargons and don't talk to one another and build some kind of common language so that the world of libraries and the world of teaching and learning uh, eventually will not be conceived of as even needing a bridge. They will be conceived of as a single enterprise with a single language. Okay, um, and uh, lastly, 